Can you explain some of those connections and maybe how they fit uh, into the Tampa Bay region? Sure. So if we look at Tampa Bay, I mean, um, the, the rate of or the prevalence of food insecurity is above the national average. Now, nationally, the rate has come down since the Great Recession in 2008 and 2009, but still overall in the nation, almost 13% of Americans are hung- hungry or food insecure, most of them being food insecure. Uh, the, the average in Florida is a bit higher, and the average in Tampa Bay is is also higher than the national average. Um, and that's problematic in a country, in a state, where uh, there is actually a high level of food uh, available to people. It's just that the access to that food is problematic. Mm-hmm. Is, so what kind of access is, is the problem here? Is it financial access to, to buy the nutritious foods uh, for a balanced diet, or is it more uh, physical access to get to resources such as food pantries or, or grocery stores to, to get the food? Right. I think it's a combination. So mm-hmm. um, it definitely is related to income. Uh, a, a lot of food insecure people, for example, in, in Tampa Bay now, uh, are not just living below the poverty level. We have people above the poverty level, but uh, their wages are stagnant, and they don't keep up with the cost of living, which includes food. Transportation is a big issue. Uh, If you look at the distribution of supermarkets in and around the city, in some of the poorer neighborhoods, uh, supermarkets are, are not there, and people need to then find a way to get food. Or they land up going to convenience stores where the variety is not that great, and often the cost of the food is much higher. Um, there are all kinds of issues around, for example, if we look at age, and we know that seniors uh, uh, a much higher rate of food insecurity than we would like to see. Uh, so it really runs the gamut, and it's, it's really multifactorial problems that mm-hmm. contribute to the high rates of food insecurity. So, so this seems unusual for me to hear because, you know, when I, when I look at the news, uh, I don't necessarily see that hunger or food uh, insecurity are a, an issue. Uh, that's, that's just not what I see in the news. Um, why? So, if, so if, it's, uh, if it's a bigger issue than I think perhaps most people are aware of, how is it that um, – wh- why aren't we hearing more about uh, these, these concerns? Well, I think, you know, for those of us who have been doing this work, and I've been doing it for more than 20 years now, um, you know, we know it's it's been present for a long time. I think we're hearing more about it now in light of some of the uh, policy changes that might uh, transpire in the coming months or years, uh, the threats to, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, federal uh, food stamps program uh, uh and, and similar programs, uh, Meals on Wheels. So you may have heard about that. There was, uh, you know, in the, in the new budget, uh, federal budget, there, you know, there are major cuts in these programs that help to fill some of those gaps that alleviate food insecurity. So it is on the radar screen now. I think one of the issues that does come up is people are just, again, not familiar with the terms. And, and I think sometimes people have this stereotypic notion of who the food insecure person is. And someone who may be, you know, uh, down and out, a homeless person. And certainly that's a, the, there is a you know, large homeless population we have to deal with, and, and, and there is a lot of food insecurity. But as we tell, or I tell my students, as we tell folks uh, uh, who, who want to know about the Hunger Action Alliance, you know, you can be food, you know, your neighbor, your relative, 
your coworker, students here at USF. We know there is food insecurity has a very di- diverse face, and we're trying to raise consciousness about that. So these, um, you know, potential consequences of of federal budget cuts that are um, funneling in money for things like food stamps or or Meals on Wheels to fill in some of these gaps, what do you think are some of the um, potential consequences um, to these budget cuts um, as it relates to food insecurity and then, like you said, uh, long-term and acute health effects? So we do know it, it really runs the gamut. Uh, that food insecurity, chronic food insecurity, is associated uh, with poor health outcomes. Uh, In in the U.S., for example, uh, food insecure people are more likely to have uh, chronic diseases, uh, non-communicable diseases like TB, hypertension, heart problems. Um, We know that uh, kids who go to school hungry are, are less likely to perform well in school. We know that, again, seniors who are living on their own, who don't have access to food or don't have access to other people, are more likely to be food insecure and experience uh, worsening health as a result of that. Mm. Yeah. Is this is this a seasonal problem only, uh, like in Thanksgiving, in, in uh, wintertime, Christmas, or is this a year-long uh, issue? It's a year-long issue, and it goes through years and decades, and it's a constant problem. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm still astounded that the level of food insecurity is, well, maybe I shouldn't be anymore, but astounded that it is at the level that it is in this country for such a long time. And yes, there's programs that help to fill that gap, and we need to continue with them, have this federal, state, local support. But there are larger issues that we have to address that are related to poverty and inequality that contribute to food insecurity and poor health. And in the long run, there's both a social and economic cost of that. It's really interesting because I'm beginning to do some work with, for example, uh, insurance, health insurance providers, and they're telling me that, you know, on their list of problems that their clients are experiencing, food insecurity is is towards the top of that list. And they're beginning, I'm, I'm a little bit helpful, and I'm, I'm an optimistic person, that people are beginning to realize, you know, Food insecurity is a lot less inexpensive to address than waiting for someone to get sick and turn up at the ER or have to go on meds to control high cholesterol or whatever it is they might have. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we're beginning to move into this direction that this could be a very uh, um, cost-effective intervention that is moral and socially right. Mm -hmm. So address the problem with healthy foods in, instead of prescription drugs. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I should mention, too, there are some states that actually have these food prescription programs. So someone goes to see their doctor. Uh, there's a short health survey they tech, take, uh, very easy to score. person comes up as being food insecure. They get a prescription for their doctor to go to the food bank or a food pantry and get food. Hmm. It's, there's a program in Minnesota. It's something we would love to do in Tampa, and we're working towards that goal. Hmm. That's really interesting. I've never heard of programs like that. So this has all um, done a really good job of setting up our conversation for what you're going to be doing or what you have been doing with the Hunger Action Alliance. So we're going to take a short break, and then when we come back, we're going to delve deeper into into the HAA. All righty, let's hop right back into our conversation with Dr. Himmelgreen. 
We've been talking about food insecurity and hunger, specifically in the Tampa Bay area, but um, and how it's how Tampa itself is situated with some national data and and other uh, metropolitan areas. Uh, so now we're going to transition talking about the Hunger Action Alliance, which Dr. Himmelgreen actually co-founded with uh, several other community stakeholders and have been doing a significant amount of work in the community and, and research, um, even with some anthropology students here at USF. And they've been doing some, some great work, so we're going to get into that. Um, Dr. Himmelgreen, how did you start the HAA? Okay, so about three and a half years ago, I actually wrote a letter to the editor in the Tampa Bay Times. Um, about the connection between food insecurity and health, long- and short-term health. And at that time, there was a new executive director at Feeding Tampa Bay, and he had read it and contacted me, and we had a lunch meeting, and he was telling me about some of his ideas about transforming the food bank and, 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 and kind of adding the health message to, you know, that no one should go hungry, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so a year and a half ago, uh, USF and Feeding Tampa Bay signed a memor- memorandum of understanding um, and formed this, this uh, partnership to uh, address hunger and food insecurity in Tampa Bay. More recently, we brought on some other partners and came up with the Hunger Action Alliance. Um, and these partners include, again, in addition to the founding partners, Feeding Tampa Bay and USF, Humana, the health care provider I mentioned, Bank of America, the Community Foundation of Tampa Bay, and some others. Uh, and the goal here is threefold. One is to establish sound, researched, uh, evidence-based research and evaluation on programs and establishing baselines about the connection between food insecurity and health in Tampa Bay. Uh, The second uh, is uh, education, and in particular, we are trying to raise public awareness about, again, hunger and food insecurity in our community, the diverse face of it, and the fact that, you know, providing food, food insecurity is not uh, just uh, the morally right thing, uh, which we think it is, but also c- has health and economic benefits in the long run. We need to raise awareness. Uh, uh, Feeding Tampa Bay did a survey uh, about a year and a half ago. A lot of people are just not fully aware. I mean, they've heard of, for example, different organizations that pro- provide food assistance, but they really aren't uh, cued into this connection between health, well-being, and food insecurity. And then the third the third piece of it is what we call transformation, where we take all of this information, the data, the, the education piece in terms of public awareness, and transform it into pro- programming and policies regarding food and nutrition. Do you think, um, to address the, the awareness um, part of, of food security as far as you know the greater, the greater population being aware that uh, this is an issue, do you think that maybe this lack of awareness? Um, well, what do you what do you think is contributing to this lack of awareness? Do you think it's maybe because people aren't affected or don't know someone af- directly affected by food insecurity, so maybe the interest isn't there, or do you think maybe it's still the stigmatization of food insecurity and, like you said before, of uh, it's only homeless populations, perhaps? Right. I think it's you know a combination of those things. I think stigma and embarrassment mm. about being food insecure is a reason why people don't talk about it. It's really interesting that you raise this issue because there's some research coming 
um, that came out recently about college students, food insecure college students, and uh, you know, really beautiful. Uh, well, it's not a good issue, to, uh, but beautiful data that really t- addresses the experiences that college students have, uh, the embarrassment and the and the stigma that they worry about. And it doesn't just affect their eating. It's it's the fact, for example, in one study that I read, students will be less likely to go out and and be you know uh, go out with friends uh, because they don't have money if they're going to go out for a meal or go out for a few drinks, uh, and they don't want to ask people for that. Mm-hmm. So they become socially isolated, and it has all kinds of implications for not only their physical health but their ability to do well in 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 school and to graduate. And this is why I think USF and other universities are beginning to pay more attention to this as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, you said a key word earlier I want to kind of uh, touch back on. So you mentioned the word um, this, this research was elaborating and expanding on the, the experience of the students who were experiencing um, hunger or food insecurity. So is that where anthropology comes in to help? Uh, elaborate and expand and tell their personal story a little bit more? Yes, uh, definitely. The, the training that uh, anthropologists and, and others have is, uh, is uh, you know, what we call mixed methods. So we, we, we collect data that uh, provides us with numbers, and that's important. That can show us a trend. That can show us a pattern. But it doesn't always explain why something exists. The qualitative methodologies that uh, all of our students learn in in anthropology are, you know, being able to talk to people, establishing rapport, doing what we call participant observation, conducting focus groups and interviews, and other types of activities to get people to be able to t- feel comfortable about talking about their experiences. And those experiences are what I think are so powerful. Uh, and this is how people connect too. It's it's one thing for me to say that. You know, 16% of, you know, uh, folks living in Tampa are food insecure. It's another thing to say, you know, to present the stories of some of those people and to show that these people come from a diverse backgrounds. And, and college students, uh, military, a high percentage of military are food insecure. Working adults, people who own their own homes, who have their own, you know, have resources but are just finding it so difficult in this economy to make and meat. The first thing to be sacrificed when that happens is food. Uh, and people skip meals. They start eating less healthy food because that food is less expensive, the highly processed foods. Mm. How do you think um, the the qualitative methods that you've used in like, your anthropological perspective, how do you think that has influenced some of the research and some of the work that you guys have already done at uh, HAA? No, we have insight in, again, the experience of what people have. Mm-hmm. Hearing their stories, it provides a powerful message, but it also gives us more insight into how we pr- do programs. So I'll, I'll give you one quick example. Some of our students did a, a project about a year and a half ago on a weekend food backpack program. Uh, these were um, kids who were attending a boys and girls club in a part of the county. Most of these kids uh, their parents were agricultural workers. Uh, I would imagine uh, quite a few were undocumented. And it was through their stories and the stories of their parents that we learned of issues like, you know, worrying about driving to the supermarket or a super center to buy food because they didn't have papers and they worried about being stopped. Mm-hmm. Uh, issues, I mean, simple issues like, you know, some of the foods that were being being provided for in the backpack were foods that, that were not culturally 
appropriate for them. So that was information we could give back to the donor, uh, to the food bank, uh, so they can then tweak the backpack to make it more user-friendly, so to speak. Uh, so one of the words you mentioned or one of the phrases or, or methods you mentioned earlier was participant observation. Mm-hmm. Um, how, does, how does that help fit into uh, better understanding the effectiveness of some of these programs? Well, yeah, with participant observation, it really is it's very simple. Uh, it, it takes a lot of time to do, but basically you spend time in the community with the people who you're interested in knowing about. And as much as possible, you, you participate in the community activities and events. Um, so a lot of anthropologists, even today, um, you know, will spend time in their field site. Uh, it could be in a remote village in sub-Saharan Africa, or it could be in downtown Tampa. And before they even collect data, they just get to know the community real well, and they participate in the activities. Once they understand that, you know, that setting, that site, that cultural milieu, uh, then it becomes easier to begin to talk about difficult topics like hunger and food insecurity and health. So it's you establish the rapport, and then you can start talking with people, and you get really very powerful data, extremely powerful data. This is one of the, I think, strengths of the anthropological perspective is, is being able to spend time, learn about a community, and, and, and get people to feel comfortable about the questions you, you ask them. So you said for the HHA, you guys have, or your your goals as an organization are, are threefold. Um, can you explain sort of how you guys have been working towards um, those those three um, fundamental parts of, of your goal? Sure. So, uh, you know, we're a little bit further ahead on some of the goals than others, as would be expected. So, uh, again, we the 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 HAA is very very new, but we actually started doing the research and evaluation piece about a year and a half ago. Um, so what happened is we started to get contacted by various community-based organizations who some of them had food pantries and backpack programs. Some of them had mobile food pantries. And, uh, you know, in a lot of these agencies, they don't have the resources to really study whether or not their programs are, are working or how, you know, what works and, and what improvements can be made. Uh, so we started you know, working with various organizations and doing these studies and evaluations. And it really has snowballed. So we started off with this uh, weekend backpack program. Uh, we've done a project on um, a farm-to-fork project, you know, what happens with the food that comes in from the farm to the food bank and out to the pantry. More recently, I had two students, a graduate and undergraduate student, in anthropology do a really neat project on what we call um, it's um, they're looking at what happens to the food when it leaves the pantry and goes home. Are people using the food? Are they throwing their throwing it out? How is the quality of the food that they're getting? Um, what would they like? You know, how could we improve the program? Very very interesting data. Another project we're doing now. I mentioned seniors before. This is actually a study being funded by Humana, uh, the health insurance provider. Uh, we're working with. Uh, adults over 65, and we're looking at the associations between food insecurity, social isolation, and health. And this will provide important insights into that, you know, the situations of seniors in Tampa Bay. And as we know, Florida, you know, we have an older population here, but we don't know enough about some of these particular issues, especially, again, those lived experiences that people have living on their own. They don't have any family. How are they eating? 
Are they preparing meals? Are they able to access food? Who are they interacting with? And we know food is more than just sustenance. Food is, is you know, has, has in sim- symbolic import. It, it's a part of reciprocity, exchange, gift-giving. It's part of uh, social relationships. And, uh, it's a glue that binds us together. Uh, but we need to know how, how our elders are doing in, in that regard. So, um, so, okay, so talking about or, or looking at um, hunger and food insecurity in, in elder populations and older populations, so there are programs out there like CSFP, which is a, um, a commodity supplemental food program. Uh, and, and you were saying earlier, Dr. Himmelgreen, that without enough qualitative research, um, who's to say that the foods that uh, these recipients are receiving, these foods are actually being used? Um, and I, I think that's important because, I, like I, so in the family I grew up in, we we would get uh, you know the monthly uh, box of foods from uh, the CSFP program, and we we wouldn't use all of them because there's just some of those foods that just there's just no way we're going to be able to use them. Um, they weren't like the I'm trying to think of what it was. Um, like a canned, like some canned meats, we just, we just, there, mm-hmm. we weren't going to use those, yeah. and uh, so we had to find alternatives, to, alternative solutions or alternative ways to, to use those those types of foods. Yeah. So, no, so this is where the qualitative data can be really powerful. I also wanted to just, just say, you know, when you talk to people, you know, uh, they're they're very cognizant of how they may be perceived by the larger community, and people will go out of their way to say, look. I'm, you know, sometimes life throws you, you know, a curveball, and mm-hmm. things happen. You lose your job, you lose a loved one. Um, it's not that people are going to necessarily going to get this food because they're freeloaders. It, it just isn't the case in our experience. And the, you know, just by virtue of the fact of going to ask for the food, it, it puts people in an uncomfortable position. Um, so, you know, if they're doing it, there's a, usually a really imp- it's it, it, it's it's a real reason, um, you know, it, it's, you know, it's uncomfortable, embarrassing to go out and stand on a line and wait for food. Um, so it is a serious problem, and one way of learning about, you know, how people think and feel about this is just by talking with them. Um, okay. So one of the other things you mentioned was, um, oh my gosh, actually, actually, maybe, maybe we'll take a break because my, <laughs> I, I well, think I, I, yeah, I, I have a question. So. Um, in, in talking with some of these individuals that are, are using the food pantries, um, how aware are they of sort of um, forming a, a balanced diet? So are they, are they going there? And uh, like Renee said, some of those foods aren't usable, like canned meats aren't necessarily the healthiest for you. Um, but if you're in a situation where you just need calories, maybe that's not a priority. Um, so in your, in your experience, how aware of people um, of maybe, well, even cooking education, so like if they get some fruits and vegetables, they don't know how to prepare, um, you know, boundaries, boundaries like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So they're, they're, you know, in my experience, not just with food insecure folks, but with, with most people, uh, people know what they need to do to eat a balanced diet. Um, uh, sometimes they make choices not to do that, uh, and many times uh, they just can't do it. Um, so, and, and, and other times, like you said, sometimes they get the foods they're just not used to. Uh, but people are very eager, actually, in, a, in the research we've done to, you know, to try new things. Uh, so in this one study, uh, 
um, that these two students said, uh, I just read the report the other day, is really interesting because in some of the households where there are grandparents, a grandmother or grandfather or both, uh, there's more emphasis on making sure the kids eat healthier meals. Mm. So these grandmothers in particular would say, I need to get my my grandkids to eat more beans, but I need to prepare, th- and we need to learn how to, or we need to prepare them in ways that are more palatable for the kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's cognizance about that and an effort, but there's more we can do in terms of education. For, for example, using foods you're not used to, people I think are usually willing to try that. They just need to know how to prepare the food. Sure. And along those lines, so so if they're receiving you know the food for free, and they're hungry, I mean, I'm sure some people would say, well, shouldn't they just eat it? Shouldn't they just be grateful and just eat whatever they get? I mean, why why should we have to cater to I mean to their needs? Isn't something better than nothing? And I think most people who receive those foods certainly wouldn't turn down the food, even if it wasn't you know a. You know, if it's it's boxes of macaroni and cheese all the time, they're not going to turn it down, and they're going to be grateful for it. But we have, you know, uh, as a society, uh, you know, and, and if you just want to speak in purely economic terms, if you keep giving people food that is not necessarily healthy for them uh, and it's monotonous, there's it comes at a cost to society, an economic cost in terms of health and and productivity. So we really, I think, have an obligation. Uh, is certainly for people to help them lift themselves up out of whatever situation there are. But there's nothing wrong with wrong, and at least in my mind, in giving people a little boost along the way, and in doing so, making you know increasing the likelihood that they'll live you know long and healthy lives. I mean, it, it's a societal issue. That's the way I see it. You know, and I agree because you know for a number of years I worked for the uh, the USDA WIC program. And uh, you know, I would many people would tell me, you know, we just because uh, because they receive milk and part of their uh, the benefits, and they would tell me, you know, we just we really don't have a need for eight gallons of milk a month, and uh, I, I I didn't have an alternative for them, so I mean, they either get eight gallons or or nothing. Right. right, and I think the food banks are realizing that, and the food pantries are realizing that, and they're doing what they can in in their power to diversify the foods that they give out to people and to provide education to people on how to eat healthier. Uh, but, yeah, I don't think anybody goes in there think, saying, I'm just not going to – I'm just going to turn this all down because it's, you know, it's all this or it's all that. And people are hungry. They need to eat, and they will. And gratefully, uh, you know, they'll be, they'll be very thankful that they get it. Great. That's a good break in our conversation for um, some more music. And when we come back, we'll continue talking to Dr. Himmelgreen about the Hunger Action Alliance. Hey, Bulls, you're back on Anthro Alert, listening to Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. We're going to hop right back into the conversation with Dr. Himmelgreen. Uh, Dr. Himmelgreen, can you uh, speak a little bit to some of the the new uh, projects or new research that you guys are doing in HAA? Sure. So uh, I was just mentioning when we, while we were off air that – we're, we're beginning also to focus on teenagers, uh, and we have two, uh, one project going on that is really, really interesting, and another one that will probably start in the next month or so. So the first one is I have a master's student, uh, and she's doing this for her thesis, is uh, looking at food insecurity among adolescent girls. And the reason she's interested in this is that there is literature out there that suggests that 
uh, food insecure teenagers, and in particular girls uh, living uh, in food insecurity, not, not hunger so much, but food insecurity are more likely or, or more likely to enter puberty earlier than their non-food uh, insecure counterparts. And that is an issue because we do know that, you know, uh, girls that uh, go into puberty earlier are at risk for certain health conditions later on in life, like breast cancer. Uh, and there's some evidence to suggest that the diet may be um, facilitating the earlier onset of, of puberty. Uh, so this is a, not an easy study to do because it's a sensitive issue. Uh, uh, and it took us a while to get the approval, uh, IRB approval, but it's really important. There has been research done on this in, in, in um, outside of the U.S., uh, uh, but not as much in the U.S. Uh, so I think it's a really interesting topic. And, and just an example of, you know, one of the things I encourage with the students uh, that are interested in this work is that it not only for them to come and work on projects that we are putting together, but to come up with their own ideas for projects. And that's what this student did, and we were able to get her funding to, to conduct the study. Second project, which we're going to start very soon, has to do with what we call the teenage food gap Uh and this is a purely qualitative study, what I was talking about before, really spending time with teenagers. Uh, we're going to do focus groups with them to get and, and, and maybe have them take photos of uh, how they experience food insecurity and what do they think are the solutions uh, to fix that problem. So we give them cameras. They go out and take pictures. They come back and put those pictures on what we call the graffiti wall, and then we have this really nice discussion about what those pictures mean. And somehow, you know, that's probably a better way to get information to uh, from kids in that age group, teens, uh, than it is just to give them a survey. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of teens uh, we know that are experiencing food insecurity because their, their parents are. Mm. So um, I guess speaking like anthropologically, um, as far as um, getting into contact with the teen population, um, you know, you speak. You were speaking to IRB approval and, and things of that nature because they're um, they're underage or under the age of eighteen most of the time. Um, so, how would you initially um, get into contact with this population to even conduct research like sure. that? Well, we work with organizations that provide programs for teens. And we, it's very, you know, it's very thorough and rigorous. Uh, so, for example, you know, our students who get to work on this new project have to go through a kind of a level, level two background check, rightly so. Um, so it really is working through those agencies that provide, for example, after-school programs for teenagers. And we access the teens that way. And then having, you know, our students who like, you know, who some of them are not that much older than the, the teens that they're going to be working with. So there's that rapport that is easier uh, to establish than if I, you know, as uh, an old fogey <laughs> going to work with a bunch of teens. So, yeah. you know, there's some, you know, kind of fitting together, too, mm -hmm. to make sure that there's, you know, you can reach that, that group. Absolutely. Absolutely. So 
my my question is, uh, you kind of touched on it a little bit that there's no easy solution for addressing hunger or or food insecurity. If there was, we wouldn't <laughs> it wouldn't be as such a, a huge issue. Um, so what? You know, there's no easy solution. That's why you guys are, are gradually chipping away and, and working towards improvement. But what are some of the recommendations you you may have on um, maybe someone that wants to uh, contribute to this or um, just HA in general? What are some of the recommendations you have to? Yeah, yeah. So how how could I help? So, yeah, how how could I help? I'm interested. So certainly, people are welcome to contact me. Anybody who's interested in and. And finding out more about the HAA and some of the activities, um, I'm always, as, as I've been telling people, this has kind of taken off uh, and it's beginning to snowball. And sometimes I get a little bit concerned about that because will we have enough people in place if the, de- you know, the demand seems to be increasing? So if anybody's interested, um, you know, I'd be happy to leave my my uh, email address and they can contact me. There is a new student group, um, the Food Studies Research. Group. Yeah, the Food Studies Research Initiative. So that's a new student organization here at the University of South Florida. Um, with the, I mean, the, uh, I'm sure. Are, are you their advisor? Yeah. I, yes. Okay. I'm, I, so I really should know the name. But <laughs> it's brand new, so forgive yeah. me. Yeah. Um, but they're they'll be working primarily to uh, drive student engagement around this issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is a group, actually. The these. You know, this is all on their own. It's made up of graduate students and undergraduate students, but not just anthropology students. They're school students from public health, from the health sciences, from sociology, um, from the School of Sustainability. Um, they formed last year, I, th- I just heard before, that I think they're close to 20 members now. Mm. They formed this organization. They are the leaders of the organization, are really dynamic people. And we are looking for ideas. As I said before, it's not just. I don't want people to think that this is just a – I'm looking for a labor pool, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, folks. Uh, yes, there's a training piece of this, and we, me as an educator has a role in that. But I also want people to come up with their own ideas on how – on projects they may do or ideas for interventions or programs. Um, you know, it, it, the more people that are kind of putting their, uh, putting their brain power to work on this issue, the m- – you know, the the more we'll come up with. And not everything works. A lot of times, you know, things don't work. They fail, but that's okay, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so if people, if anybody's interested, you can get in contact with that group or you can get in contact with me. Uh, we're really, really eager, and I think there's a lot of positive energy or around what's going on now, and we are looking, just looking for enthusiastic people who want to, you know, have a passion about addressing this, this really significant problem. And so, outside of the USF student population, um, what are what are some things that you think that we, as a community or as a society or as a a national uh, community, wh- what are some what are some approaches that we need to be moving towards? Yeah. Well, I think we one of the things we need certainly to be uh, thinking about is 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 making um, increasing the availability of food. Uh, and the accessibility of food in lower or poorer neighborhoods and communities. Uh, there's a lot of inequality, and um, and if you look at food availability and accessibility, it's really uneven. Um, so as a, an example, before I came to USF, and this is a long time ago, I did work in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, and... Uh, at the time I worked in the Hartford, Connecticut, which is a mid-sized city, capital of, of the state, 
Um, there were the I, there were only three major supermarkets in in the city itself. Mm. All <laughs> small, <laughs> right, right. And uh, mm. but you know you know two decades earlier there were many more. A lot of them moved out into the suburbs because that's where people who had more resources moved to. Uh, so I think there's that issue of uh, availability and access. Transportation, as we all know, is a, an issue in uh, in Tampa Bay. So if you're someone, if you're someone older who doesn't have a car or who doesn't drive anymore, if you have to take a bus or hire a cab to get to the supermarket to get your fruits and vegetables, um, you know, they're, they're – it's more difficult to do. It's a barrier because of cost, but also time, and and even for families, working families, if you don't have the transportation, um, you know, then you can't get to those places where there's more more variety of food. So transportation, um, you know, uh, access and availability, uh, just overall recognition that this is a problem that affects again going back to what we said in the, the beginning it's it's it could be anybody it could be you know the person sitting next to me in, in a classroom or or even one of my colleagues uh, in my department it doesn't just affect students we know st- staff and faculty for example at, at colleges and universities are also food insecure we look at our part-time faculty who don't earn a whole lot of money um you know, there's a high. We we suspect there's a high level of food insecurity among them. So we have to raise awareness, and then we have to address these larger structural issues. It sounds, it is a major challenge, but there are things we could do in in small steps along the way, like improving food pantry, mobile food pantry distribution, more having more mobile vans going out there, and more times offering more choice. You know, those are small little things that we could do to start chipping away at the at the larger issue. Yeah, I can attest to the the transportation issue. As as an undergraduate, uh, I didn't have a car, um, and when I was still a freshman and a sophomore, I didn't have friends who had cars. And so, I mean, th- frequently it would be a group of five or six of us trying to take the bus to the grocery store, and then you know having to do that, and then time your time in the grocery store. So when you come out, you don't have to wait. 30 minutes for the bus to be there so you you have to like you know there's some logistical issues there plus trying to carry nine or ten grocery bags on the bus and then back and it's just it's exhausting it would take almost an entire saturday afternoon just to (laughs) a trip that would usually take what 30 or 45 minutes if you had a car took us consistently you know two or three hours and this is not an uncommon problem i see it all the time you know, people walking with a few bags of food, and mm-hmm. you know, from the from the Publix uh, mm-hmm. to back to where they live, um, and so th- those sorts of things are a little bit easier to deal with to begin to chip away at the problem. So we're, we're running out of time for this week. Um, we're having a great conversation, but we're going to have to wind it down. Uh, Dr. Himmelgreen, do you have any final thoughts? Anything that you might have forgot to mention that you or any points that you just really want to get across? No, just, you know, again, just remember food insecurity is a, you know, it is a big issue. Um, It could be anyone uh, that you know. Um, uh, You know, we we should get away from the stereotype of of who the food insecure or hungry person is. And I think we do, uh, you know, and I'm not trying to get on my high horse here, but I. Uh, for me, I think there is this social responsibility uh, of ad- addressing a, a, a problem that is actually can be solved. 
considering all the food that we have in this country. Great. Well, that's all we have for Anthro Alert uh, this week. Um, I hope you enjoyed our conversation. We thank Dr. Himmelgreen for joining us this week. Um, I know that we enjoyed our conversation and all of the, the links to the music, but also Dr. Himmelgreen's email um, and uh, the Food Studies Research Initiative. Their contact will also be on Anthro Alert. Um, so if you'd like to learn more, feel free to go and check that out. All right, we will see you next week.